Hello again, friends. Welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast about having big, bold, philosophical conversations with incredible, inspiring people about not just what they do, but why they do it and how they see the world and the moments that have shaped them. I'm your host, James Perrin. I want to acknowledge that today's podcast, today's episode was recorded on a Rockwell country in Bundjalung Nation. I want to pay respects to members, elders of the Bundjalung community and all First Nations people around Australia and around the world. Now, I have an absolute treat of an episode for you today. Today, I've got the final live conversation from RenewFest in Mullumbimby back in May and It's with an absolute gem of a human, a living legend, esteemed author, thinker, and co-originator of the permaculture concept, David Holmgren. Now, we've all heard of permaculture. It's been a massive movement all around the world. So many people have taken on the concepts of permaculture design into their homes and their gardens. And so rather than just talk with David around what is permaculture and how do we implement it, I wanted to take the opportunity to step back and have a bigger conversation. We start by talking about where did permaculture come from? Why did you feel like you needed to develop it? And truly, he shares that it was birthed from his perspectives on what the future could look like and the challenges that we may or very likely will face as society and what actions and behaviors we then need to cultivate now to change our trajectory. So in this conversation, we dive into a whole nother body of work David has done, which he calls future scenarios. And he outlines and shares these potential future scenarios that we could be facing and the challenges that come with them. We also talk about in the face of global over-reliance on centralized corporations and governments, we've outsourced so many of our services. We talk about the need, the importance of cultivating both self-reliance, that is taking things into our own hands, as well as collective reliance, that is building authentic, genuine, purposeful community connections. And then finally, we dive into a lot of the content around his most recent book, which is a few years old now, called Retro Suburbia, A Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. This is an incredible book. It is a manuscript on not just what we can do, but how we should be living. I cannot recommend it highly enough. He is a rare mix of highly intellectual as well as just genuinely human and down to earth. I think you're going to love this one. And the live crowd at RenewFest just adds a whole nother dimension to the atmosphere. So please enjoy this conversation live from RenewFest with none other than David Holmgren. Just wing it, shall we? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, I... Hello, hello, everybody. Um, by quick way of background, my name's James. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to be partnering with RenewFest for some of these conversations. And is that for me? Oh, thank you. How good is that? I'm <laughs> You got the shade. I'm here <laughs> boiling, sweating in the sun. We should swap. I'm interviewing you. You, I need, you need to be sweating in the hot seat. <laughs> 
Um, I and uh, just by a quick way of background, so I'm a sustainability engineer and, and um, chem- chemical and environmental engineer and, and sustainability manager. But I've also been running this podcast for the last nine or so months called the Overview Effect, which is based on this concept, this premise. Um, this experience that astronauts have when they first go up into space and they look back on Earth for the first time and they see our world at a distance and they see how fragile and beautiful and how amazing it is and they feel this overwhelming sense of connection and emotion to our world and the beings that inhabit it. So that's kind of the premise to explore big picture conversations with environmentalists and humanitarians and I'm very grateful to be able to sit next to another amazing guest today. So uh, he really needs no introduction, but um, I'm going to do one anyway. So David Holmgren is a obviously very well known as one of the co-originators of permaculture. And as well as being a practitioner and teacher of permaculture, he is also a very well credentialed author and philosopher. He's written books such as Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, uh, Future Scenarios, How Communities Can Adapt to Peak Oil and Climate Change, and his most recent one, which was written three years ago, um, which just like all of his books, seems to become more relevant every year, and it's a bit weighty because it's part manifesto and part manual, but Retro Suburbia, A Downshifter's Guide to the Resilient Future. Please join me in welcoming David Holmgren. Thanks, James, and uh, thanks to uh, Luke and Ella and all the other incredible volunteers that have uh, put this together and to be part of it um, after these years that it's now uh, a lineage here. And for me, this is um, really one of five visits to the subtropics in my life. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so they're all sort of formative experiences, I think, uh, including the first one when I was here in the aftermath of the Aquarius Festival in 1973, which was one of those uh, influences on what became permaculture, maybe. Oh, yeah, that would have been a good one. Um, I'd I'd love to start by hearing some of your stories, or if you have a story for us. So, so uh, thinking about that, that overview effect that I just introduced um, and those, those moments where we have those kind of paradigm shifts in the way that we see and interact with the world. Have you had a moment or an experience or a period of time that's really shaped your perspective on how you view and interact with our world? Yeah, it's uh, those sort of questions I've always said, no, I'm, I'm sort of like an incrementalist, you know, I keep sort of adding another little bit and then there's never been that aha moment where the, the vision has come through in some crystal clarity. But I suppose when I look back, obviously like uh, perhaps most people, um, those formative years of youth uh, that I would say, especially from age 17 uh, through to mid-20s, I can't believe how much happened in that short time. And of course, for me, there was a period there living uh, and working and thinking and arguing and gardening with Bill Mollison for about 18 months in which I wrote the Permaculture Manuscript, which became the basis of Permaculture One, that is a sort of a a formative uh, moment in time when we look back from the point of view of being in our (laughs) mid-60s. (laughs) 
but if I sort of trace that back a little bit earlier, I think as a, as a kid, um, I was what would be called a super rationalist. Uh, you know, I pulled apart clocks to see what made them tick. Uh, you know, I was the proto-scientist, but also the kinesthetic kid who, who did stuff, you know, broke things, you know, built things. Oh, the speaker's gone? There we go. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, right. <laughs> okay, so, uh, and so super rationalist that I would edit out my dreams because I couldn't make sense of the dream world. And then through a pathway of that rational, ideological discovery of key moments in trying to find a pathway to be rebellious from my radical parents, <laughs> I had to find something that was outside their field of reference and it turned out to be be the ideology of the politics of ecstasy, courtesy of Timothy Leary and co. And, uh, you know, so I had this ideology at 16 that there was all these drugs in society that were depressing consciousness, but the potential of the mind-enhancing drugs was an ideology before I'd ever smoked a joint. So, yeah, very much in the head. <laughs> and that led to formative experience with five managed LSD trips at 17 in my final year of school when I was ducks of the school, um, the highest academic award. And I think the final of those experiences shattered forever the idea that we could fully understand the complexity of the mind, the outer world, and was I look back and see that that was a formative experience in opening me, not just at a intellectual level, but a heart and body level to all of the complexity we see that we relate uh, to the earth, even though that was actually the last LSD trip I ever had. Wow. So maybe that was one of those formative moments. Maybe it was. And, um, you know, that, that wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be the first person to say that um, uh, an experience with LSD has had that formative moment for you or had, has given someone that, that kind of overview effect or that paradigm shift. And um, what a wonderful trip that was because it gave us permaculture. Eventually. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> there was a lot of other seeds in the in the pathway, obviously. Um, well, you're, so you're very well known, obviously, for permaculture, which I think a lot of people, perhaps not everyone here, but maybe perhaps people that kind of hear it on the margins or at surface level think that it's a fancy form of gardening. Um, but your work is deeply rooted in exploring, and, and it, it really comes from exploring the key challenges of our time. And you've, you've written a lot and you've... Um, You've, you've written and spoken a lot on um, things like the concept of energy descent and these big challenges. In fact, the, the first whole chapter of Retro Suburbia is framing up these key challenges of our time. I think it's important to go there and explore that and, um, and acknowledge what these key challenges that we currently face are. So could you, could you take us there? Perhaps 
um, some of the, those three key challenges that you talk about in the book or your, what you are referring to when you talk about energy descent? Uh, that's a dangerous question. That's sort of like asking me an uh, invitation to get up on the, <laughs> if not the soapbox, then the lectern and give a, a sort of a, <laughs> a continuous one-week dissertation. Well, oh no, but, yeah. Can you do it in just like a few uh, minutes? Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, the elevator pitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I suppose it's important to recognise that permaculture was informed by a dark view of the state of the world and future possibilities, but was focused around the positive things that can uh, um, be involved in transformative change. And it started with agriculture as the prime activity on the planet by humans by which we get our most important material needs net. Primarily what a lot of us are doing here right at the moment, which defines us as animals, I can see quite a few animals out there eating food. You know, how does that come about? Agriculture in some form or another, including gardening. So from the beginning, from a deep systems ecological perspective, we saw food and agriculture as the most central issue. And of course, permaculture spread into popular culture or exploded into popular culture in the late 70s as a cool form of organic gardening, sheep mulching. So much so that people thought permaculture was sheep mulching. <laughs> <laughs> it was really difficult to sort of push away these successes to say, well, that's just one technique which is suitable and appropriate. In some places but not, may not be uh, in others. So I suppose um, moving on into the 90s, I saw a lot of the techno-optimistic green tech future stuff still seem to me uh, framing around how to end up um, searching for solutions and partly finding those solutions and then turning the solutions back into the same old problems. And the deeper foundations for what was called sustainability and in per permaculture needed to be articulated more strongly. And so my book, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, and the distilling that around a distillation of permaculture design principles uh, which has since sort of reinvigorated the teaching of, of permaculture as a, a deep concept of resilience, regeneration, and that now slightly tired word, sustainability, which is problematic. Yeah. We've, we've started, we started with sustainability, we moved to resilience, and now we're very much in the regeneration phase of the terminology, I think. Gee, words don't have a very long life, do they? <laughs> They get used and disposed of. Do we have a, a word recycling system that we can, <laughs> you know, we'll, um, uh, you know, to be politically incorrect, we'll, you know, um, uh, disabled people uh, come back or what, what was the ones before that that, again, oh, no, that's no longer acceptable or this. <laughs> I can remember... Uh, a letter to the newspaper locally that described the willow trees round Lake Dalesford as 
uh, a pristine wilderness that um, shouldn't be damaged. And then someone else writing to the paper the previous week that had said, it's a bloody wilderness that needs to be cleaned up. And I thought, isn't that interesting? In the same community, two people using a word in English that with two opposite meanings, simultaneously about the same issue. <laughs> Do we actually even have a language that we can talk to each other? I get what you're talking about there, like recycling words. Maybe it's like a word compost. It's like a word composting <laughs> oh, system and then yeah. we can... Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned before uh, your, you, you said what you call your green tech scenario and maybe we can just cover that for a minute because you, you've done a lot of work in your future scenarios work which is really about exploring the different potential futures we face. You know, it's not just maybe what we hear on the news and the media, that this is going to happen and that's what we need to prepare for. What, when I've kind of explored that, your work there, you've gone, well, let's look at the uncertainties of the impact of climate change and whether that's going to be more than what we think or maybe not as much as we think, and the uncertainties of the impact of um, the decline in oil mm. and whether that's going to be a slow descent or a very quick, sudden drop-off. Mm. And then from that, you, you basically end up with four quadrants, right, or four mm. scenarios can you explain what those scenarios yeah. are to you and, and how that's shaped your thinking? I, I know you tried to ask me that question and I sort of... <laughs> <laughs> I went back and built a few foundations, but now... <laughs> now we're ready. That. Okay, so firstly, uh, the framework uh, for thinking about uh, futures other than uh, the normally projected ones is to see those in four possible long-term future scenarios. The first I call techno-explosion, which is, you know, we're all going to Mars with Elon Musk, etc. You know, this has been around for a long time. I, I was fed it, not so much by my parents, but by the boys' magazines. Well, you know, um, whether that's an emergent possibility, it depends, in my view, that there is, and it can be manifest very quickly, uh, a greater source of net energy to support humanity or whatever humanity ends up turning itself into than what we've had from fossil fuels. Now, of course, people like Elon Musk actually believe that renewable energy like solar and, and, and whatever is that. And they're off on that trajectory. That's been there for a long time. The second possibility I call techno-stability. And that's the idea that we're going to do restructure our society away from a need for perpetual material growth, uh, reform the monetary systems, deal with geopolitical uh, conflict uh, and uh, use uh, a rapid shift uh, to renewable energy to create a steady state. Now, a lot of people don't realise where that... Uh, um, that techno-stability view came from, but it's the default one that mainstream environmental organisations and, uh, and a huge increasing proportion of people say, yeah, that's where we are heading and that's where we could be heading and that's where we should be heading. The third I call energy descent, where there's a, a reduction in, on average, around the world over centuries in the net energy and resource base to support future generations, which requires a simplification and a re-ruralisation, a relocalization of 
all of our basic functions over some period of time. And the fourth scenario is I call collapse. And I don't mean just the collapse of the stock market or the suburban way of life. I mean the unravelling, continuous spiral unravelling that happened like to the Minoan civilization in the Eastern Mediterranean or the Mayan civilization in Central America. The decline of the Roman Empire was energy descent. Very well documented. That's sort of a model of what I thought was actually the most likely future for global society. So because that's almost not looked at, people look at techno-explosion and then say, if that's not going to work, it's going to be collapse. This is millennialism. You know, we're going to heaven or we're going to hell. Um, and and I know, think what I'm, I'm... So looking at all my energy descent scenarios are fleshing out that and then using that framework to look at different variations of that. Yeah, and well, what, I'm, what, I, what I was going to say and what I'm hearing in that is it's not about then looking at those scenarios and going, I think it's going to be that one, you know, and let's aim for that. Well, let's do what we need to do in that scenario. It's actually kind of stepping back and going, okay, well, what ways of being will be will serve us best in all regardless of which scenario plays out what mm. do we need to set up now yeah. so that we are able to adapt or that we are ready for any of these scenarios mm. the thing that i've done is broken one of the rules of scenario planning in in terms of those four big scenarios i've talked about because energy descent does not get it's not part of the consciousness um i said let's look at that because Permaculture was predicated from the beginning that that's going to happen in some form or another. Now, if it doesn't happen, then permaculture will be reduced to some sort of subculture of people or their evolutionary parts that emerge from humanity <laughs> um, as a little sort of enclave like my Jewish ancestors in the, uh, in the ghettos of European Christendom uh, maintaining to their 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 world out of a value structure while the rest of the world moves on because I believe very strongly that w while human ideas and energy contribute to creating the world when you look back from the big ecological perspective it's the underlying energy and resource base that nature bats last nature determines what we what we can be and the limits of nature whether that's the renewability of does nature work do trees grow those cycles or the things you discover in holes in the ground that have created this huge explosion of what we treat now as normality, they all came from nature. Hmm. You know, they didn't come out of humans being smart. That's one of the delusions of the urban mind that in European civilization got disconnected from its sources of substance when they discovered two continents of free resources where 90% of the people died at contact in the Americas. And they didn't understand how much it was that that was creating the new mercantile capitalism and all of uh, the world we currently assume. 
Um, how, see, I told you not to ask me I know, questions like Because here I am listening, I'm going, okay, how can I segue this? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, one thing that jumps out to me in, in all of your scenarios and in all of your work and everything that you're talking about is this... Um, in all of those scenarios, whether it's the, the, the green tech, you know, Elon Musk will save us and let's put all our eggs in that basket, or whether it's the renewable future and renewable technology will save us and let's put all of our eggs in that basket, or whatever it is, the government will look after us. It, it, for me, flexibility. It's, it's flexibility and also stepping out of our reliance on external um, people, organisations, governments, corporations. Uh, I love how you refer to three must completely be artificial corporations in moles, bullies and cunnings <laughs> that you refer to in your work. Um, but how much, how much of these issues that we face do you think are just our complete reliance on these centralised systems? Yeah, look, the, the understanding the big picture is only useful for some people who need that strategic larger scale map and for me, the future scenarios work was to help uh, permaculture and kindred activists who are sort of trying to think about those things be a little better informed and aware of what might be coming over the horizon or, or whatever. But the real important stuff to do is the grounded, yeah. get connected to your sources of sustenance, get connected to what are the relationships in real, achievable, uh, both network and geographic place-based community and take back the power that we have lost by doing things for ourselves. So it's self-reliance and collective reliance at the household and community scale. The other thing about that is that it's a moral imperative. If, if you've got weird ideas about society should be organised completely different from this way, which is completely normal, isn't it? Without any historical reference. Then you, we, should be the guinea pigs to see if we can make that work uh, for one person or one household or, dare I say, uh, one uh, intentional community or one school community uh, before we say, well, society should make these big reforms at the top because we've got this really good idea. Uh, no, do it ourselves. Be the guinea pigs. See if we can make it work at that scale. Hell yeah. <laughs> and in that, I love how you said self-reliance and collective reliance because I've certainly had the moments in my life where I've thought, screw this, I need to go and buy a bush block and set myself up off-grid and cut myself off so that I'm self-sufficient. But, um, and, and perhaps maybe that's, you know, some people who haven't understood permaculture and the work where that's come from have, have gone to. Whereas what you're talking about is, no, it's, it's very important to take your matters into your own hands and be self-reliant. But just as important are those community, those um, place-based connections and really, that's, for me, that's what a big part of this is about, right? It's how do you connect with those around you and build a reliant, uh, appropriately sized, reliant community and collective? Yeah, I, w I want to 
answer that in a, a couple of ways. I first want to, uh, in a form of pushback, mm. acknowledge the the ratbag individualists who went out as do-it-yourself, try and do everything in a sort of an extended form of adolescence uh, or if even childhood where we try everything and through that we find what we're actually good at. You know, so we all build our own houses, we all grew our own food, you know, tried to design water systems and etc. Et Not just in the physical stuff, but tried to create businesses with new forms of uh, operational rules and new forms of financing and everything. Rebuild, de redesign everything from scratch. Uh, yeah, it's a hard call, but it's also what... Um, uh, in the Transition Towns Network is called the Great Reskilling. There is a need for a whole lot of people to get grounded and get practical and become useful people. Mm. And, you know, we still have a chronic shortage of competent food producers in this country. Sure, not everyone needs to grow their own food, but you need to be connected and rewarding someone who is a competent food producer. In fact, multiple competent food producers. Because we do actually have a lot of people who can design new software. We do have actually a lot of people who are great with communications technology. And although I totally support what a lot of people call social permaculture who say, look, we know what all the physical design things are, but can we get it together as people? That's the weak link. Very true. But I cringe when they say, we know what all the solutions are. If that was the case, why don't we have um, suburban gardens that are generating this huge surplus of food, which is triggering uh, young children who are becoming, you know, commercial gardeners? Why don't we have all of these spontaneous processes where we're generating all our own energy, not just from things manufactured in clean room manufacturing in China, but from what we have around us. We don't have our act together at a lot of the basic levels. So that's the first thing. And that the people who have those skills should have, instead of being at the bottom, should be elevated as having status. And that's one of the great things about uh, farmers' markets and community-supported agriculture, this elevation of the status of people who produce food. Uh, so it's not an anti-intellectual thing, it's not an anti-technology thing, it's a strategic thing, is what, is what are we really missing? And in this country we've, we've got a lot of capacities at those high levels. Yes, we need to redirect those and you know, maybe I could point to someone in this community who's been brilliant at doing that, who have been staying with Mitra Ardren uh, there in terms of facilitating how do we get these processes to happen through entrepreneurial networks and uh, etc. But there is a deep importance in that uh, basics. Accepting that, then yes, the community level, we can't do everything. And especially as we get a bit older, we, <laughs> we find we actually can do less. <laughs> uh, so 
the other critique there that my retro suburbia work says is that seeing this long lineage of there's the individual and then there's community. And a lot of the great activists have actually been individuals who maybe live with a partner or a family or a household, uh, but they're really gregarious and they like lots of people around and they even like going to meetings and they, you know, connect with people and they go, yeah, we need to do it at the community level. And that somehow that word, the household, where all of us live in some form of household, is either taken for granted that that's all together or it's actually not useful or it actually belongs to the social conservatives who want to return everything to the 1950s. The household in Australia and similar societies is the weakest link in the chain and that's one of the strategic reasons why my retro suburbia work actually focuses on that. And I use the term household rather than family because it may or may not be a, a traditional family, it may be an extended family, but we know throughout history that people suffering tougher, more challenging times, whatever form that comes in, reconsolidate in larger households, mm. most commonly extended family households. And hey, what well, we've got the smallest households that have ever existed in history. We're sort of trend, we've been trending down towards one person households. And hey, what? It's really hard to be resilient, uh, regenerative, and sustainable as one person households. And you're. Your, st your Aussie street story tells that really well. I love how it's, it, you know, it, storytelling is so important to create those examples and those stories for us to grasp these concepts. And, um, it, and it's another thing in this book, but I know you've written about it in children's books and done other, other talks on this, this concept or this story of Aussie street. Um, but perhaps you can take us through that a little bit. It takes, takes us through the decades and looks at things like how square meterage per person, you know, just... It, I'll let you, you take yeah, it Yeah, well, look, it's, it's a permaculture soap opera, you know, from <laughs> starting in the... Well, Dick Copeman, uh, Northern Street City Farm, uh, introduced an early version of it that I gave uh, to an audience of 300 people in a hall in Brisbane in uh, 2006 on a round Australia speaking tour with Richard Heinberg, where he was giving the bad news about peak oil and I was giving the good news about permaculture instead of a whole lot of evidence and whatever, through my Aussie Street story. Um, and so it traces these four houses and households from the 1950s through up into the 2000s when the, the feral permaculture retrofit starts at, at uh, number two and spreads to number three, while life drifts on at number one and at number four it's been hardened down with infill development in the backyard and everything concreted over and tenants who don't know their neighbours and don't know the uh, owner who they only deal with through the real estate agent. So for many years that was just left as a how can this process that started at number, number two and number three in Aussie Street spread and colonise 
the more difficult psychosocial and biophysical territory of number one and number four. And I left that as an open question and then it morphed into uh, the next part of the story of the second Great Depression in Australia and how the people in Aussie Street survive and thrive through really challenging shit that happens. Um, and I found that storytelling was a much better way to deal with really challenging issues than giving people a whole lot of facts. Mm. But it was also me laughing back and poking fun at academics to say, why don't you go out and study what actually is happening in our residential heartlands and hinterlands where most Australians live? Because after 1975, there was no serious academic study of what Australians do in their backyards or do at home at all. Until 2005, where suddenly there was a whole lot of new focus on that. And books like uh, um, Harvest of the Suburbs by uh, Andrea Gaynor, some of the first academic work looking at the history of backyard food production. Um, you know, so it was like we are completely ignorant about what people do, let alone what they could be doing. So I was doing a meta-analysis of Aussie Street showing how many square metres per person there are in the various decades, what are greenhouse gas emissions, how many hours of occupancy is there, how much people are away, to sort of pull the rug from out under the feet of one of the ideas that I think has been so toxic and wrong that environmentalism has got on board with, which is the idea of densification, infill development uh, to make our cities more efficient. And on top of that, I've been saying we don't need to build any more buildings. We've got enough. We just need to work out how to uh, use them, share them, retrofit them, for useful purposes. The pandemic has shown that maybe half the economy is completely unnecessary anyway. You know, the gymnasia, the dog shampoo services, you know, 90% of the cafes and whatever. It's tragic, of course, that most of those are owned by small businesses and the really important stuff of the essential economy is dominated by corporations like moles and bullies. But... The, the Aussie Street story was a way to sort of raise awareness. So I had a meta-analysis. You know, I actually did a, like a PhD on Aussie Street. But Aussie Street is a complete fabrication. It's just a story. Mm. <laughs> it, it paints such a good picture, though. And I love... The thing that I really love about it is that, one, we're not starting from a... going. We've got to throw out everything and start clean slate and redesign from scratch. It's a retrofit of a you know our existing situation we find ourselves in, and two, there's that ripple effect. You know, uh, I think Ollie and was it Ollie and Ali uh, that went in at number two, yeah. and that started to flow over to the backyard of number three, and then yeah. in the next decade, one of the daughters started to put a goat in the backyard of the elderly neighbours at number one, and it just painted this really wonderful picture about that ripple effect or, you know, you could even say like that kind of morphic resonance theory of how what you do actually can very much contribute and 
play a role with what other people do and how it influences other actions over well, time. Well, my last visit to Mullumbimby and uh, went to uh, Sharon Gibson's place and there's actually a, a little photo in Retro Suburbia book of her place here in Mullumbimby and coming back, apart from how much further she'd taken the whole Retro Suburbia journey in her backyard, I'm, the first thing I noticed when I got there was there was these verge gardens in the place next door. Mm. <laughs> and uh, new owners there were doing their version of uh, retro suburbia. So, uh, yeah, these creative ways in which the message spreads. I wonder how many people here, I think, unless my memory's wrong, my last visit to Mullum, I actually did a presentation of Aussie Street, a version of Aussie Street in... Uh, um, the Civic Centre yep. here. But I can't remember whether it was the old clunky PowerPoint vo version or the upstaged version, which I'm about to do tomorrow night. I'm really rusty at Aussie <laughs> Street. Uh, at Coffs Harbour, uh, supported by the um, local government there. So most of the presentations since the book have actually been supported by... Uh, local government sustainability programs to audiences of between 30 and 300. Have you found that, um, in, especially in the last year, but really since the book, there's been a, a renewed sense of and, and support and interest from local governments? So, you know, I'm just thinking we face this housing crisis here. The, the crisis here is, is ridiculous. We've got the most expensive real estate in the country and we've got um, this enormous tourism you know, Airbnb situation where people who have lived here for decades now struggling to find places to live. Do you mm -hmm. think that all of those issues that we face are starting, to, you're finding renewed sense of a lot of this work and support of this work? Yeah, a bit, but it is difficult without there being a whole framework of, there's the academics that have done all the, res the research and evidence and they're talking about it to their students for years and decades and then they filter into uh, government and these ideas get thrashed around at a policy level and then the state government, someone sort of says, oh yeah, we could do a bit of that and they put some framework together and feed that down to local government and say, you could do this because there's an evidence base that this will address this, this, and this issue. Meanwhile, through all that time comes the opportunity for government, for businesses and corporations to influence that policy before it filters down as well. Yeah, and so when you start talking about uh, just the household and community non-monetary economy, and people, I've never heard that term. Does the, is that part of the discourse, uh, or when get more deliberate with sustainability officers or mayors of saying? What is the greatest thing you could do? You could have a support program to encourage people to take in a border into their houses. Mm. Where can they go back into their sustainability stuff, which will say, yeah, that will tick all these boxes. Where's the evidence base that, oh, larger households are actually more energetically efficient, uh, so there'll actually be less greenhouse gas emissions. Where's the evidence base that this will lead to greater community development and less crime because there's more casual eyes on the street. And the trouble is, a lot of that evidence base, if it was there, would also show that these activities will reduce GDP mm. and that therefore they're economic treason. 
So in some ways, the ambiguous just people doing things under the radar, and I mean like sustainability officers who can say, well, we can support this retro suburbia thing because, yeah, it ticks this box, this box, this box, and the people above them go, oh, yeah, okay, we'll do a little bit. And you try and get in the top end and you'll say, no, you will be cut out seriously because this is economic treason and it's meant to be economic treason to pull the power back out of those corporations. Now, people would say, how did... How could taking in a border, you know, contribute to doing that? That's such a sort of pathetic little thing. Now, that's just one strategy. But I think gradually there is more people having a sense of that. And our main focus was to empower the people who are already living this way to do it better and create a new normal, not in the sense of a majority of people living like this, but just enough people where kids can go to another house and, oh, yeah, you know, that's like what we do at home. Or, you know, you don't need many people to create a new normal, especially for children. Mm. And so the Our Street Kids book, which is my Aussie Street adult story, which is very adult uh, <laughs> uh, in some of its elements, maybe even politically <laughs> incorrect, um, there's the Our Street version, which is told from the point of view of the kids in the street. Now, I have to let you know, as a publisher, kids' um, illustrated children's books are not economic. You, you know, like, they all have subsidies. They all are funded. Ours isn't. And we did it, even though the spreadsheet said, this way will never make a, um, uh, a profit. Because um, we just want it even there, if it's for the kids who are living this life, that they can see themselves in the story, then that's good enough. The really good thing would be if that could slide into all the environmental education mm. pro programs at schools and seed a kids-led revolution in suburbia. Um, if we could achieve that, and if any of you are teachers or know the networks to actually see if that book suited a, a program, then we're really interested in doing that because it would help us financially and we believe it would be this amazing ability to see change from the bottom up, from the kids. Mm. Hear, hear. It's a wonderful point you make. It's such a good point you make about... <laughs> The, the, the contrast between we need to tick the sustainability box versus what just feels like the right thing to do on a common sense, you know, normal everyday person level. Uh, you know, the example, if we keep with that housing example, the example that sticks out in my mind is that we could um, build a six green energy star house with all the LEDs and the permaculture garden and everything and we could talk about how sustainable it is and how eco-efficient it is or we could just house those two people in existing houses <laughs> and because we have the the highest floor space ratio in the world i think here in australia is that mm. right yeah yeah i i think it was a about 2005 our average house size became the largest in the world but that's only the tip of the iceberg because uh people are hardly ever at those houses 
because they're both out on the on the mouse wheel, mm. uh, paying the debt for the enormous imaginary value of the. It's not even the house. The house is worth your house is worth nothing. <laughs> Forget it. It's the land under it that just keeps rising according to a law of anti-gravity up into the stratosphere <laughs> of finance. Uh, well, uh, so that means you don't have to use your house. Its use value is irrelevant. So apart from being out um, paying for it, you're then so stressed from uh, the, the job you're doing, which may be what... Uh, the uh, I think it was Dutch economist who classified a huge proportion of the jobs in the world as bullshit jobs. Uh, bullshit in the sense that the people doing them even thought that those jobs were useless to society. But then you're so stressed by that or even doing the, what you think is halfway useful work that you then need your consumer rewards. So you're going out to the restaurant at, at night instead of cooking food at home and you're going to the gym and you've got this consumption lifestyle where you're actually never at home. But meanwhile, the empty house is going up in value all the time, isn't it? It doesn't need to be used. So it's actually not occupied and it's this hours of occupancy. So where are all those people? They're out moving to and from other partly used buildings, creating a sense of crowding in our cities, which leads to grumpy old Aussies saying it's all the bloody migrants coming in that are making our cities crowded and unaffordable. It's just that everyone's out moving around. There's actually no more people than was in a lot of those cities per hectare than mm. there w were in my childhood. <laughs> and, and that to me speaks to, you, you roughly break down the following elements of the book to built and all the things around how to you know, sustainably build houses and all that other good stuff, biological and largely around you know, the gardens and the water and the setup and the interaction with our environment. But that, what you're talking to largely speaks to that third one, which is behavioural. And that really feels like the one we haven't cracked. Yeah, and we tried to pull together the threads from our own experience in that. And at the household level, my biggest influence in that is really behind a lot of that work and the ideas, uh, really my partner, Sue Dennett. Uh, and... Yeah, some of those ideas are sort of quite controversial, but they're also distilled out of the learnings of the intentional communities movement and all sorts of efforts, that, great efforts that people have made of how do we share, how do we uh, live together, and also dealing with the big tough issues uh, of, of finance and debt, uh, raising self-reliant and resilient children, uh, sustainable and sustaining diet god there's a controversial one uh you know um aging disability and and death so we tackle all the hard issues without necessarily answers but markers as some of the templates of what people have tried in this ilk and sue says i'd start at the back of the book with the behavioral yeah <laughs> it's really three books in one in yeah a way. it it totally is um and I guess so on that, to carry that forward, I mean, people can go read the book and obviously explore your work, but if you could um, give us some, you know, what can, what, what can we do? As we, we've got this beautiful gathering here, we've got all the, these amazing progressive minds, what a beautiful 
festival for us to gather and congregate and have these big picture conversations. So then when we go home to our houses this evening, to our homes, what can, then, what can we do? What's, what are the practical and things that we should all be working towards? It's uh, very difficult to answer that question because every one of us is in a different situation. And uh, doing an audit, a personal and household audit of, okay, where do our needs come from? You know, how are they supplied? Um, all of that. And that may lead to things like, I think I need to move to where my kids and grandkids are living or uh, maybe uh, I should go back to the family property and uh, resolve those conflicts with my uh, cranky parents and see if they'll um, uh, let me build a tiny house down the back and if it's mobile I can always, you know, go somewhere else or, you know, like... <laughs> And I don't want to sort of like anything you choose to say is, you know, completely irrelevant to some people you're saying it to. Mm. Um, you know, it may be I need to grow some food, you know, or I need to exchange something with that person across the street that I have this sort of say hello relationship to, but I have a sense that they have part of the, 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 the puzzle. Look, I, I would want to segue slightly mm. from Retro Suburbia back to future scenarios, but via the pathway of storytelling. And apart from the Our Street Kids book, which is obviously storytelling, the publication that we um, did just before that is by permaculture author Linda Woodrow, uh, who wrote the book um, Permaculture Home Garden, one of the best-selling permaculture books in Australia. And uh, uh, beginning of last year, uh, she sent us a manuscript, a very complete manuscript of uh, her story. Um, and we said, in a fit of impulse, having never published a novel, let alone tried to sell it, published that book, 470. We don't have any copies over there at the moment. How many people have read the book, 470? I, I would be really interested in honest feedback of whether people in this region where that book is set as uh, climate-driven catastrophes happening about 10 years into the future from now, given the aftermath of the bushfires, the floods, the pandemic, and given the history of what this region has had in terms of resilience and whatever, whether if 10% of the population in this region read that book, whether that would trigger runaway conversations, discussions, actions that might be another seed of, of something happening. Now, obviously, I have a con <laughs> uh, you know, the, an established interest in this because uh, uh, we want to sell that book. But I think it just struck me being here, you know, going down to Byron, going down, being in this 
the Mullum market and being up in the back hills, you know, because Linda's intimate knowledge of all this territory and the social territory has, I think it's a, a great read, but maybe that's just because I'm sort of projecting that into it. Uh, but that's, that's a, a sort of an example of something uh, people could do and see if it uh, triggers those yeah. discussions. I think what I'm hearing from you, which is exactly right, it's like not give me your top 10 tips on how to raise veggies or do this in the backyard. It's actually, okay, where do we, what, where do we go to learn more and actually what type of conversations well, do we need to have? Well, if I was going to do that, I'd point to people like Sharon Gibson. Don't ask me. <laughs> this is the foreign subtropics. I don't know yes. anything about that. <laughs> but it's not what, what do we need to do? It's actually how do we need to be and what kind of conversations do we need to have and how do we need to reflect on ourselves and our experience and who we are and how we interact. And... Um, I, I think I think that's about it for time, but I will say David and Sue are here. If you haven't seen their stall, um, you can go and have a chat, and they've got books on sale. Um, there's a few of their books in the library. Um, this one's in the library. I think there's a couple um, in the interest of a sharing economy. You can go and rent one, but that's one of them, So, and I rarely return my books on time, so good luck waiting for that can one. Can I just say that it's available <laughs> online yes. as, a, uh, as a flip book uh, on a pay-what-you-feel basis? Uh, and then another mm. seven or 8,000 people have access that. We do think that a lot of people did that and they said, nah, I'll go and get the, <laughs> the real physical book. Mm. Uh, but we did that in a response to the, the pandemic. So yeah. it is available to everyone uh, if they want. Yeah, wow. Wonderful. Well, please, ladies and gentlemen, a living legend, can you join me in thanking David Holmgren? I think that's us.